Good morning, First City. Uh, thanks for bearing with us as we had some technical difficulties. Uh, glad that you're joining us. Happy Easter. Uh, I hope that you are sitting in your living room dressed up in your Easter best. I wore a tie for a video. So hopefully you're uh, settling in uh, on this Easter morning. Looks like winter is taking one last punch at us, but um, hey, it's the Midwest. Uh, it's an uh, opportunity to uh, just settle in for the day and spend some time with family. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at First City. Uh, we're excited that you're uh, joining us on Easter. Uh, in this unique season of being unable to meet, uh, we've been taking a hybrid approach to our Sunday gatherings. And so this live stream, a call to worship and message is a way for us to center ourselves around God's word together, albeit remotely. Uh, and then the provided liturgy is intended to encourage you to engage the other elements of worship as a family. Uh, if family worship is uh, something that is new to you or unique to you, uh, we've provided a, a guide uh, to using this live stream and liturgy uh, for family worship that's on our website. Uh, and hopefully that will, will help you uh, navigate through these different elements of, of worship. Uh, and one other thing before we uh, begin, uh, if there's any way that we can pray for you or serve some practical needs, uh, there's a link on our website that you can fill out a form. Uh, we'd be happy to pray for you. Uh, or if, if there's any way we can serve you, let us know. If you're in the Bellevue, Papillion, Sarpy County area and you don't have a church home, uh, feel, feel no fear in filling that out. Uh, uh, First City is a church that would be more than happy uh, to meet any practical needs and serve you and love you uh, in this difficult time. So please let us know if we can do that. Uh, with all that as way of introduction, I want to call us to worship from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And so in this Easter morning, we celebrate the greatest work of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Here we see the glory, the majesty, the righteousness of God put on full display. May our hearts be enlivened and encouraged in that good news this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us uh, this Easter morning. Uh, even as we worship from our homes and have to settle in uh, on, a, on a cold and rainy morning, at least for those of us here in the Midwest, um, I, I pray that we still would have a lot of hope and expectation for what you want to do this morning. Even uh, though I, conditions are less than ideal, uh, may our hearts be fully uh, awake and aware uh, to the power of the resurrection. Uh, that we have an incredible, enduring, lasting, eternal hope because Christ is raised from the dead. And so may that bring us joy this morning. May that uh, draw us into worship. May that cause us to want to engage your word and to pray and to sing and to profess and to confess and all the, the elements of worship this morning. Uh, may we fully engage our hearts because of your goodness and your glory and your grace to us. Uh, be with us now as we engage your word. Open our eyes and our hearts uh, to the beauty and the power of Christ and the resurrection power that he has unleashed uh, in us and in the world uh, through his work. Uh, we thank you for your word that gives us hope. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So here's what I want to say at the beginning is that First City Church 1000% holds to and believes that Jesus Christ indeed has been resurrected. We believe that he actually, literally, historically walked on this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, and then he was raised again. And now he, he has ascended into heaven and he's the resurrected and reigning king. And one day he is going to return. We put all our hope and all our faith in that truth. And, and what that means for us is that there is incredible power and hope for us today, that the resurrection is something that doesn't just impact our future, but it actually impacts our present. And, and that's what I want us to consider today. And so I, I'm not going to spend time trying to prove the resurrection to you. Uh, for those of you that maybe are watching this live stream and you, you don't profess faith in Christ, or maybe you're unsure of what you believe, but you're joining on Easter, uh, understand that there, there may be questions that you have about the resurrection uh, and proofs and facts uh, that, that I'm probably not going to answer this morning. My goal is something else. My, my goal is to help all of us see why the resurrection matters today, the power that is available to us today because Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so if you have questions, I'd encourage you to do something with those. Reach out to somebody that you know. Reach out to First City Church. We'd be happy to, to engage you in any way that we can. But what I want you to pay particularly uh, clo atten close attention to this morning is why the resurrection matters. Because if the resurrection doesn't matter, then it, it doesn't deserve our attention. It doesn't deserve our celebration. But if it actually matters right now, today, then it is something we should give our full attention to. And so that is, that is our goal this morning. That's my hope, is that as we engage God's word, we'll understand why the resurrection matters. And here's a question for us. Here, here's the question the resurrection actually puts in front of us. What is our hope? What is our source of power? Look, in this world that is full of beauty and light and potential, there is also great darkness and great pain, great suffering, great sin, great injustice. What do you do with all of that? How, how do you have hope in the midst of that kind of world? In a world that is being rocked right now with pandemic, and who knows the outcome and, and how this is going to affect us? What is your hope? What, what is going to give you power to continue to live with a sense of meaning and purpose, even when our lives have been thrown in, into uncertainty and difficulty? That's what I want us to consider from John 11 this morning. John 11 gives us a story of Jesus and showing his power, his resurrection power, in the midst of a very sad and painful situation. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this story from John 11, and then I want to make some observations and reflections for us to consider. So if you'd follow along with me from John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. 
The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, like any good story, this passage in John 11 carries a lot of tension. And the tension primarily revolves around the incongruous way that Jesus responds to Mary and Martha and the death of Lazarus. See, this passage goes out of its way at the beginning to make a point about Jesus' relationship with these two sisters and their brother. It makes the point that Jesus loved them. In verse 3, when the news that Lazarus is sick first comes to Jesus, this is what the messengers say. 
Lord, the one whom, is, whom you love is ill. And then in verse 5, it tells us, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then later in verse 36, the crowds seeing Jesus and the way he's moved, they're like, see how he loved them. So right at the beginning, there is this clear communication. Jesus loves this family. And here is the tension in this, though, because we know Jesus loves them. But then the way Jesus responds to the death of Lazarus, the illness of Lazarus, seems to be a little out of character for someone who loves them. I mean, consider if you had a friend who you knew was ill, who you knew was on the brink of death, would you not go immediately to see them? And what if you had the means to cure them, to help them? If you loved your friend, would you not rush to them and, and try to bring that cure and help them? Yet, yet this is not what Jesus does. He waits. I mean, hello to tension. How, how can you reconcile these two things? Jesus loving this family, but then Jesus waiting. This is the tension that the passage brings for us at the beginning. The other aspect of this is the expectation that Martha and Mary had. They knew Jesus could heal their brother. They believed in Jesus' power, and that's why they sent for him. They send for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus so he doesn't die. But again, what they expected him to do is not what he does. What they wanted him to do is not what he does, at least not at the beginning. And so there is an expectation born out of the fact that they know Jesus loves them, but what Jesus does doesn't align with that expectation. But there's more to this. There's more to this. Because it says that the reason Jesus waits, one of the reasons Jesus waits, is because he loves this family. Verses 5 and 6, the sense there is Jesus waits not because he's got other things to do, not, not because he's got another priority, so to speak, but because he loves this family and he has a purpose for this family. In verse 6, the, the so in the beginning of that verse, or in that, in that verse, the sense there is the word therefore, meaning the reason Jesus waits, or because Jesus loves them, therefore he waits. So we could read it this way. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore, because he loves them, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was waiting. The waiting wasn't a sign of neglect. It was a sign that he actually loved them. Again, tension, unmet expectations, questions. This is the great thing about John 11. It invites so many questions. It challenges expectations. It, it begins to disrupt how we think about the love of God for us in our lives and the expectations we have about what the love of God looks like. And so for those of you that follow Christ, maybe you can relate somewhat to Martha and Mary in this regard. You've heard messages that God loves you. You believe that God loves you. You have confidence in God's love for you. And yet, there's that thing that is still present in your life that he's not removed or done something about. You've heard messages that God loves you, and so your expectation is that he'll move in power in your life and remove perhaps a sickness or perhaps a trial or perhaps there is sin in your life that you've been trying to fight and overcome. Whatever the challenge, the struggle, the trial, whatever hope, whatever expectation you have, and you're banking on God's love for you to step in and remedy that, and yet here you are waiting. 
And so, like Martha and Mary, maybe you're sending up messages and prayers and saying, Lord, the one you love is ill. Lord, the one you love is in pain. Lord, the one you love is suffering. Lord, the one you love is caught in sin. Would you not come and help? John 11 raises a lot of questions for us, challenges our expectations. So Jesus, loving this family, he waits. And, and why? Why? In Jesus' love for them, what did he want for them that caused him to wait? Well, here's what we read in verses 14 and 15. Jesus tells his disciples that the illness does not lead to death. That the reason he waits is because Jesus is not worried about death being the final word in this situation. He says the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus purposefully forces some tension here. He, he purposefully disrupts expectations to force the issue and, and actually put in front of his disciples and Mary and Martha and others something greater and something bigger that they needed to see. He, he says that this death, this illness does not lead to death. And that the reason he waits is so that the glory of God may be put on display. And so that when the glory of God is put on display and the power of God is put on display, they might believe. So Jesus is driven by this. He wants his disciples to see the glory of God, to see the power of God and believe. He's after their faith. He's after their belief. He's after an experience, that they experience the glory of God in such a way that it transforms them, that it enlarges their expectations of God's power, that it deepens their faith and their trust and their joy in God. And so when Jesus waits, when Jesus forces the issue and creates this tension, he's after something great. Why, well, why is he driven by love? Because Jesus knows that our greatest need is to believe in God. Our greatest need is to experience the glory of God and be transformed, to be set free from our sin and the, the things we hold on to, the idols that we've created, the comforts that we hold on to, all of the things that entangle us. It's when the glory of God shines bright and we believe and we take hold and we're transformed that we change. And so Jesus is motivated by love here. He wants to put the glory of God on display. And it is when tension arises, is when our expectations are thrown off and distorted that we're probably most aware, that we begin to question our security and our foundation, we begin to question what we think was true, and we're more receptive. So this tension is a good thing. This tension is necessary. And we can even think of our own day. I mean, we're living in such uncertain disruptive times right now? I mean, how, how do we make sense of this season of pandemic and, and even the things that's drawing out of our hearts uh, as our routines have changed, as the idols of comfort and security have be begun to crack, as, as things that maybe we sort of repressed and didn't want to deal with are now coming to the forefront. And, and so here we are in a, in a season where perhaps we're more receptive to what God wants to say to us 
more receptive to our need to behold the glory of God and to believe in Jesus and his power and, and what Jesus has come to do to save us. So here's where this passage connects for us. We need to allow the tension, allow the disruption to lead us, to, to cause us to ask some questions and begin to listen to what Jesus has to say about what God is going to do in this season, about what it means for God to put his glory and his power on display, to give us, cause us to question, maybe the love of God in my life, the way the love of God is going to manifest itself in my life could, be look, could look different than what I expect, could actually be doing something deeper and more powerful than I would ever choose it to do. That's what's held out in front of us here at the beginning of this passage. And so for us to, to see the glory of God, for us to recognize that God's delay is not his neglect, for, for us to see that God's delay is actually his sovereign and his good work in our lives, we need to have our expectations shifted. We need to have our expectations expanded because expectations can cause us to see what's there or to miss what's there altogether. Uh, when Mindy and I first got married and moved to Arlington, Virginia, the apartment complex that we moved into was not exactly the nicest place. It wasn't run down or it wasn't a dump, but it was old. It was converted military housing from the 1940s. And so you can imagine it didn't have a lot of amenities. We didn't have central air. We didn't have a dishwasher. Uh, it, it, was, it was one of those kind of old looking apartments that when you move in, you're like, how could I ever be comfortable in this place? And so for a newlywed couple moving in, it was hard for us to have high expectations for that place. How could we ever start a family there? How could we ever really get comfortable and see ourselves living in a place like this for a long time? So our expectations were really low. But what we failed to see is that this apartment actually had a lot of benefit to us, that it had a lot of character, that it had a lot of potential. And so as our expectations began to shift and as we began to see that actually we can settle into a place like this, we can actually be comfortable here. We can actually host people here. We can have good, make good memories here and have get togethers and parties here and enjoy this space. Our expectations shifted and we actually begin to find a lot of joy in that apartment. And yeah, I'm gonna admit living in a house is a thousand times better than that small little apartment, but what, when we began to see what was there, when we began to shift our expectations, that made a world of difference. And it's the same for you and I. When, when our expectations about the power of God in our life, when our expectations about God's love for us are shifted, when, when they're expanded, we see God active in ways that we might have missed before. And so what John 11 holds up for us is that we need to have a shift and our expectations. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's shifting expectations. He's giving us a bigger sense of what it means for us to recognize the love of God and the glory of God in our lives. So let me frame it out this way. Look, we all live with the hope in a sense that we would experience something glorious and that would in some ways transform us. Well, we want to experience things that are great and bigger than ourselves, that give our lives maybe a sense of meaning and purpose. So think of it this way. Well, we want to live for maybe the glory of accomplishment. If I can accomplish certain things, be part of something bigger, that's going to change me and give my life meaning and purpose. Or maybe it's the glory of 
a certain experience like traveling or maybe being out in nature. Those experiences have a way of making the world bigger than just us and transforming us and, and enlarging our hearts. Or, or maybe it's the glory of a relationship or, or love and the way that that transforms us. Or the glory of victory, whether it be in athletics or military or political or, or overcoming a certain obstacle. There's these things that we want to experience, glories we want to experience that uh, capture our heart and bring us joy. And what that is, is that it, that's an echo of our longing for the glory of God. You see, our, our sinful hearts may chase after other things. We may try to find glory in other things. But that that's there shows that we were made to pursue the Lord because the Lord is glorious. He is beautiful. He is true. And, and so we, we're ultimately longing for that. But, but here's the other aspect of our lives too. There's a lot of glory. There's a lot of beauty. But there's also brokenness and death and dysfunction. And in the midst of that, what do we want? We want to experience healing. We want to experience growth. We want to get better. And that is a longing for resurrection, a longing to be transformed, a longing that, that the death and the dysfunction and the sin and the brokenness and the suffering aren't the, the final word, that we don't succumb to those. We're not beaten down by those, but rather there's a greater and deeper life for us on the other end. And so we have this longing for glory. We have this longing for resurrection in the midst of this brokenness. But our expectations here are important. Because often here's our expectations for how we think about glory and resurrection, how we think about the power of God. It often comes in two mistakes. One is the mistake of prevention. The other is the mistake of just someday. And so for Mary and Martha, they were connected to this idea of the glory of God being put on display through prevention. Mary and Martha had the expectation Jesus would come and heal their brother. Notice what they say in verse 21 and then in verse 32. They both say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have lived. God's power would have been put on display had Jesus come and healed their brother. And even the crowds said, how could the one who healed all those other people not heal this person? They thought the power of God had skipped over Lazarus had skipped over Mary and Martha. They had the expectation that if God doesn't prevent, if God doesn't heal, then somehow his power has failed. That somehow his power isn't present. And that is the mistake that you and I can make as well. We can believe that if, if God doesn't prevent tragedy, if he doesn't eliminate suffering, then his power has either missed us or his power has failed. The mistake can also be made on the other end. Jesus shifts their expectations in the other direction. In response to Martha saying, Lord, if you had been here, he tells her, your brother will rise again. And like a good Christian, she's going to say, yeah, of course, I know. On the last day, he's going to rise again. I have hope in the resurrection. But here's the shift Jesus wants to make. He says this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, you need to shift how you think about resurrection. You need to shift how you think about where resurrection power is located. For Martha, it was a day, way out there, some day, far out from the present. Her expectation is that the resurrection was this event at the end of the age where all would be made right, where transformation would happen, where our bodies would be restored. And she was limiting resurrection power to just that moment, something in the future. And 
often, we can do the same thing. We can sort of put resurrection power down the line into the future. That it only has effect and power for us someday. And here's what ends up happening. As Christians, we can begin to detach the idea of God's power and resurrection power from our everyday life. And so we think of it as, man, someday when Jesus returns or someday when the resurrection happens, man, isn't that going to be great? Isn't that going to be amazing? And yes, and amen to all of that. But we miss that there's resurrection power for us right now. And when we miss that there's resurrection power for us right now, we can sort of detach from our life. We can, in some ways, try to escape by thinking about the resurrection someday. We can sort of like detach from the pain that we're experiencing right now rather than entering into it and engaging it with the power of God in our lives right now. We can also give this sense that Christians don't care about what's happening right now. We can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, as the saying says. Then we, when we see the resurrection is only someday, we effectually live our lives in our own power. We, we, we start to believe that, well, I just have to white knuckle this. I just have to endure. I just have to sort of make this through until that someday down the road, rather than trusting in the power that is available for us right now. Because here's what Jesus is telling Martha. The resurrection isn't in a day. It's in me. The resurrection isn't some event. It's a person. And if it is a person, this means that where Jesus is, there is resurrection power. That means that resurrection power isn't just for the future. It's also for today. Yes, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead points to our future resurrection. And we celebrate our future resurrection. We don't diminish it. We look to it. We meditate on it. We put our hope in that future resurrection. But we also recognize that the same resurrection power that will one day rise our bodies from the dead, renew our bodies, give us eternal bodies that will never be corrupted, that will never face sin, that same power, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, is available to us now. It's the same power that's working in us right now. Resurrection power, yes, in the future, but resurrection power now. The same power, the same power, church, grab hold of this, that is going to renew us, is the same power giving you the ability to enter into the pain and the suffering you experience now and still experience life Enjoy. We need to grab hold of this truth. We need to recognize and we need to broaden our expectations of the way resurrection power works in our lives. So, look, are you suffering? That is a stupid question because we're all suffering in some way, right? Even if we weren't maybe suffering acutely before, the way life is right now, it feels like there is a measure of suffering in some ways. If you are suffering, and we all are, let us allow Jesus to shift our expectations, to shift our expectations about what it means that the power of God is at work in our lives. Don't limit God's power to just prevention. That, that you are suffering doesn't mean that God's power has skipped over you or that God's power isn't present in your life now. No, resurrection power is present for you right now. Resurrection power is exceedingly powerful in your suffering. Even though you die, yet you will live. Even though you suffer, yet you will live. Even though you suffer, yet you will have power. Even though you suffer, yet you will have joy. Even though you suffer, yet you will endure. 
Look, the suffering you are facing does not swallow up the power of God. No, the power of God shines all the more brightly. The glory of God shines all the more brightly. Your suffering doesn't diminish God's glory. Your suffering hasn't shadowed over the glory of God. No, the glory of God is going to shine brightly through your suffering. God is going to put his glory on display in a way you would never expect or pray for. And that is good news for you because God knows what you need more than you do. God's power is working in a far greater way than we would ever hope or ask. And so trust that the glory of God is going to be put on display in your life. Trust that God wants to put his glory on display in your suffering. He wants to put his glory on display so that you would believe, believe more deeply, have more uh, hope, have a, a deeper sense of God's presence, ha have a deeper sense that God loves you and he's for you and he's actively working to renew you. This is resurrection power now. This is why the resurrection matters now. Resurrection power in the future, yes, but resurrection power for us now, even in the midst of our suffering. Let, let me add this too, though. Look, the fact that God may want to do something beautiful in your life by not removing suffering, the fact that he may want to put his glory on display in your life by not removing suffering doesn't mean we have all the answers to why we suffer. Like there are reasons God reveals certain things to us, but there are reasons that he doesn't reveal. Like if you're familiar with the book of Job, Job went through this tremendous amount of suffering. And guess what? God actually never told him at the end of the story why he suffered. Job had this incredible encounter with God and his faith in God grew, but God never told him why he was suffering. Look, Job's friends came and they thought they knew. They, they gave all these theological reasons for suffering and on paper, they were good answers, but they thought they knew how to apply that to Job's situation. They, they thought they could stand in the place of God and sort of peel back the curtain and say, hey, this is what God is up to. And God rebuked him for it. He said, you have no idea what I'm up to. How, how dare you think you can speak for me and my plans in Job's life? And so church, there are questions for us in our suffering that we're not going to have the answers to. And let's not be Job's friends and, and try to tell one another, hey, this is what God is up to. This is why you're suffering. And be able to speak as if we know authoritatively what God is up to. Rather, let us encourage one another to believe, to take hope, to grab hold of the love of God and the power of God. That much we know, that much we can do, that much we can encourage each other in. Because here's what we do know. No matter what God is up to, no matter the suffering you are facing and the pain that you're facing, God is not indifferent. God has purpose, but God is not just up there sort of just playing games with us and, and using us as object lessons. No, God cares deeply about the pain and suffering that you're going through. He's not unmoved by that. Look how Jesus responds to the suffering of Mary and Martha and the death of Lazarus. Well, what does he do? It says he weeps. And Jesus weeps. He sees his friends weeping. His friend has died. And so he feels that sadness and he weeps. But it says something else too. And this is, we need to recognize what's happening here. It says that he was greatly troubled in his spirit. He, he, was, he was upset. He was stirred up in his spirit. 
And the word there in the Greek is not sadness. It's actually anger. Jesus is feeling anger in his soul in this moment. The, the, the situation is moving him emotionally to where he's greatly upset and troubled. And why? What is he upset and troubled by? Well, here's how theologian B.B. Warfield answers this question, and it's an important one for us to, to grab hold of. Why did the sight of the wailing of Mary and her companions enrage Jesus? Certainly not because it argued unbelief. Unwillingness to submit to God's providential ordering or distrust of Jesus' power to save. He wasn't angry at Mary and Martha. The spectacle of distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death. It's unnaturalness. It's violent tyranny. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come to destroy in this world. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Jesus is angry at death. He's angry at the destruction and the pain and the despair it has caused in his world. And so Jesus turns to the tomb in an act of war against death. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And in that he's saying, death, you don't win. Death, you don't get the final victory. Death, you don't get to destroy my world. Jesus is angry at death and he intends to do something about it. He is waging war on sin and suffering and death in this moment. And so the suffering that you and I feel, the suffering that you and I experience, the sin that you and I experience, Jesus has waged war on that. And not just here, not just here at the tomb of Lazarus, the same compassion, the same love, the same anger at death and the intent to end it leads Jesus to the cross. It leads Jesus to be struck down by evil and sin. It leads Jesus to allow evil to take its best shot at him. And yet in his resurrection, in the thing that we celebrate this morning, in his resurrection, Jesus defeats finally, once and for all, sin and death and hell. It is love that, sends, that causes God the Father to send Jesus. It is love and his concern for our suffering, his compassion for us and our sin and our suffering that, sends, that causes God the Father to send Jesus for us. And, and when Jesus comes, he deals with sin and suffering, not by snapping his fingers and just eliminating it, not by just pulling us out, but rather entering into it through suffering, through being struck down, through pain, Jesus ultimately defeats it. This is the good news of the gospel for us. In Jesus's suffering, he puts an end to suffering. In Jesus's death, he is going to put an end ultimately to death. His resurrection power greater even in the midst of suffering. His resurrection power greater than death. This is our hope, church. God doesn't have to doesn't have to prevent suffering. God, the, the, the resurrection power isn't just for some day. It's for right now. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are our great hope in the future, but is also our great hope right now. So the question for us in conclusion, 
Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that Jesus was once crucified, but now is resurrected and reigning? Do you believe that there is resurrection power for you right now, even in the midst of your sin and your suffering? Do you believe that God wants to put his glory on display in your life? That his love is powerfully at work, even in the midst of your painful and difficult circumstances? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you putting your hope alone in his work on your behalf, his life and his death and his resurrection? Is he your joy? Is he your treasure? Is he your ultimate source of hope? Look, in light of the resurrection power that we have, in light of the incredible hope that we have someday, but in light of the hope that we have right now, let us put our faith in Jesus. Let us believe. Let us be like Mary and Martha. Let us believe and all the more deeply as we see God's power in our life. Let our expectations be blown apart that even in our suffering, yet we will live. Even in our pain, yet we will live. Even in our suffering, yet we will have power, yet we will endure. Let that be our expectation. Let our hope be in the Lord and let us rejoice this Easter morning in the victory we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the ways that you upset our expectations in order to expand them. You want us to have greater hope and greater expectation of your power in our life. So would you take this word and seal it on our hearts that we would believe in your resurrection power for us today. That, that we would not be detached from our life. We would not just see that someday there is hope for us, but that we would see there's hope for us right now. That it's living and it's active. Father, would you deepen our trust in you this morning? Would you deepen our joy in you as we celebrate your great power and victory over death by raising Jesus from the grave. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this Easter morning. I hope that you enjoy the rest of uh, your time with your family in worship, celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and trust that your day, your afternoon will be a sweet time of just living in the goodness and the grace of God. We will see you next Sunday for another live stream and liturgy.